Welcome to the Hojak Project, a community case study exploring transnational Korean adoption, cultural identity, and the impact on the next generations. My name is Tanya, and I'm a child of a Korean adoptee. I'm Courtney, and I work in the space of contextualizing mental health and experiences from a cultural standpoint. Welcome back to the Hojak Project. This is episode two, following up from the first episode talking about my story and now we are finding out my DNA results. Yes, we ended last time with your results from one of the tests at least sitting in your inbox. So before you get into what you found, how did you feel about opening the results? Yeah, I was nervous for sure. There was part of me that was like, is it going to be nothing? And I'm not going to have any Korean matches. Maybe it's just going to be all on my dad's side, which is fine. But I think I was expecting the worst. I shouldn't say the worst because that would be part of the story that there is no matches. But yeah, I think I was nervous for that. And I really wanted to connect with anyone from my mom's side. So there was just that, that looming kind of anticipation, anxiety, and excitement all at once. So what did you find? So the first one was from Ancestry and I had three matches from my mom's side. And then how many did I have from my dad's side? I had 900, Um, which I wasn't expecting so many matches. But again, I think that tells you so many people are interested in finding out more of their ancestry and family and connections to their roots. So what is your dad's heritage? So it's a mix, a lot of French, German, Scandinavian, a lot of French though. So yep, that European mix. And then of course, on my mom's side, it confirmed that she was full Korean, which I wasn't sure if she could be part Japanese or even... I mean, someone said like, are you sure? Was your mom full Korean? There was always question there, but definitely it confirmed that she was full Korean. And so, yeah, had three matches. And one of the matches was a girl looking for ties from her dad's adoption from Korea. So that was interesting. From what I've learned, not a lot of boys that were adopted out of Korea during that time. It was a lot of girls. I wrote to her. She hasn't responded, which who knows why, but I I was interested by that, that I found another adoptee or a child of an adoptee. Okay. So you said that was just with ancestry. You found three matches. Uh, What about 23andMe? Did you find any difference there? Yes. So I was really excited about 23andMe because during my research, found out there's a lot more Koreans that use 23andMe. So I did find a lot more matches. I had 1500 matches both on, your on mom's my side. mom's side and dad's side. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was both. How was that split up? They did not split it up. Interesting. <laughs> so okay. Versus Ancestry, they had your parents split up between mom and dad. And I just expected 23andMe to have that as well. And so to be honest, I was really overwhelmed and I just saw 1500 matches. And so 
what I did, I just looked at my first match, which is the strongest DNA that I had, which is a second cousin. And so I clicked on her profile just to kind of get a read of how 23andMe gets laid out and found that she is full Korean. And was very encouraged by that. Very unexpected to know that the strongest shared DNA is actually a Korean cousin, which got me really excited. So I sent her a message. I was like, ah, we're cousins and kind of shared my story, which I probably should have taken a pause and thought through exactly what I was going to say. But in my excitement, I was like, maybe she'll respond tonight because we share the same great grandparents. So from that point, I was like, okay, this is 1500 matches. I don't know which is going to be on my mom's side or dad's. Clearly the majority is on my dad's side. And so I went through each and every one of those matches to see which ones are Korean and which ones aren't. Felt like I was a main character in a movie. I spent two Friday nights sitting at a coffee shop. One night it was pouring, raining, huge thunderstorm. And I'm like clicking through my ancestors being like, Oh, are you Korean? Are you my Korean family? <laughs> it was pretty funny. Wow. So your second cousin, does she live in Korea? Does she live in the U S I don't know. So some of the profiles, they'll have their bios. Some of them will be blank. Some of them will be filled in with where their parents live or great parents great-grandparents live, but this particular second cousin, she didn't have anything filled in on her profile. It just shared that she was full Korean. Based off of her name, I think she is in America or in a Western country because it didn't have her Korean name. Again, she could have both and just goes by her English name that's given, but I anticipate she's in the West. So out of the 1500 names that you're going through in a coffee shop in a dramatic fashion with thunderstorm, and I'm sure that took a long time trying to identify by names or photos alone, if you are related to this individual on your mother's side or your father's side, how many were you able to identify as from your mother's side? Yeah, I identified 30. So out of those 1500, which again, ancestry was just three. So having 30 matches to my mom's side felt really surreal and powerful and more than I could have expected. Again, in this thunderstorm coffee shop night, I thought it felt out of body in a way of like, yeah, this connection and tie to my mom and she's clearly, you know, she passed away, like I've mentioned previously. And so it was really emotional. There was parts where I felt close to her and connected and it felt like this was a long time coming. And I'm at this pinnacle moment, being able to connect with other cousins and I'm writing them. And it was over the course of a, a couple weeks of doing this. And so some of the cousins would respond and share where they're from. And a couple of them are in Korea and I'm telling them I'm running a marathon in November and they're telling me about the weather. And one of them has run several marathons. And so is telling me about the course, which felt really meaningful. And then of course, there's 
a third of them that haven't responded still. And who knows why, right? I think there's many reasons, whether it goes to their spam folder or they're just not on it, or they haven't been active in over six months. And then another interesting point out of those 30 is that 10 of them are adoptees. Really? Yes. So it's other adoptees that are also on the journey of finding their birth families. But I thought that was a really high percentage and I think was really curious. I'm like, oh, are other cultures or other countries of adoptees, do they have the same rate or percentage? I think it just, again, shows the amount of adoptions that came out of Korea. You said that 23andMe has more information on Korean individuals. Do you have any idea of how many Koreans have taken the their heritage and ancestry tests through 23andMe? That's a good question. A lot of my Korean friends that I've told about this project, I'm like, you need to take your DNA test because you don't know what's out there. And you don't know potentially if you're connected, your second cousin or third cousin that you could be connected with and how much that would be meaningful for them to know and reach out. So, but the majority of friends that are Koreans, they don't even think about taking their DNA test because they're already connected to their family. But I think what I found through this process is that you don't know what you don't know. During the time of the war, some extreme measures have had to take place, right? And there could be some family secrets that you don't know about. Someone could have been given up. A sibling could have been given up. A aunt could have had to have survival sex, right? And this child might have been born from that. And so I think in the Korean culture, there is a lot of shame that's attached to it. We don't know what's happening within our grandparents, our great-grandparents. Basically, a lot of the adoptees that I have connected with, they're having a hard time finding connection to their birth families. And the connections that they are having are oftentimes with other Korean adoptees. And that's what I was wondering. You have so many more matches on your father's side of European descent. And I'm just curious if there is just how many Koreans take, you know, or, you know, a percentage, what that percentage is, if they're already connected to family with family being so a part of identity, right? You have this family collectivist culture. If there isn't a need for it, because we already know Or conversely, like you were saying, you know, within the war or during stressful times, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes individuals who do choose adoption for their, for their biological children are in circumstances that are difficult and that are hard. I'm just curious if those family members who did choose adoption for their children, if they don't have the economic resources to spend on a DNA test such as this as well. So I was just curious if you knew, if you knew that number. Yeah, I, I don't know that number. And I too wonder if it's not even the socioeconomic standpoint, but it's also just not knowing, not knowing. Or wanting if, not to know, like you said. Yeah. Which, 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Because the shame, not wanting to know, not knowing if a family member has been adopted or not adopted, the other adoptees that I've connected with on 23andMe, they've had similar stories to where they've said, Hey, we've reached out. We've been connected with second cousins, similar to me, and none of them will respond. And I think it's due to a lot of the stigma that's around adoption, them not wanting to open secrets within the family, it being a shameful experience. I had one friend talk about one of her other friends that got a message on Facebook or even through one of these DNA tests saying, hey, I'm your second cousin and shared kind of the story. And that person didn't know what to do. They're now messaging their aunt or their relative be like, Hey, I got this message from someone and they said they're related to me as a second cousin. Is there something in the family that I didn't know about? Mm -hmm. And so that cousin just didn't respond because they didn't know how to respond. And so I think that gave me a sense of empathy because I have wrote, you know, the second cousin that I found out was so excited. And of course, the first time I'm like, you know, saying all these things. And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, that could have been really jarring to hear from a second cousin who you had no idea existed before this time. And so I actually reached out to a friend who works with a lot of the Korean diaspora. She is a clinical psychologist. And so I was like, hey, can you help me craft this letter to the second cousin? That's maybe not so, hey, we're family. (laughs) Say hi to me. Can we be BFFs? (laughs) Right. But like kind of sharing from her experience and like, oh, this must have felt really jarring to you. I can imagine you not, you know trying to come from her, her approach and wrote that message to her two weeks ago. And so I haven't heard back from her, but I think from hearing that story, I'm trying to empathize from that side of, oh, these people may not even know we exist. And that could bring up a lot of memories that could bring up a lot of things within the family that they wanted to bury for a reason. That's a really interesting point that on your search for identity, it could shake other individuals' sense of identity. I thought I knew everything there was to know about my family, but hey, auntie, what's going on here? I mean, just that, that ripple effect and the ramifications of just showcasing how we are connected. We are interconnected way more than maybe than I think coming from a very individualistic culture. So I'm not going to say as we all think, because some people very much grow up with the understanding of we are connected, but that's just a really interesting thought as well of my, my search could potentially disrupt other individuals sense of identity. Exactly. It's true. No matter how much I think I feel what I need or what I want to learn about my Korean identity and my mom's story and why my grandma or grandfather gave up my mom, I think it's so much more layered and nuanced and it has that ripple effect to touch all these other people who are navigating or maybe thought their identity looked a certain way, right? But maybe like you said, it's disrupting and interrupting what they thought even about their family. And so I think for me during this time, I've had to really wrestle with, okay, this might be part of the unknowable story. And 
I might not know what happened to my grandmother that made her choose to give up, thinking that this was the best option for my mom, right? Because whatever lived experience that she had may be affecting my cousin in a way that I don't know. Now, I have a question that may or may not make it into the final cut of this episode. But one of the things that you talked about in the first episode was, you know, of some people saying, well, you don't look half Korean, right? And, and using your looks as a way to identify you. And yet you sat in a coffee shop having to do that, going through everybody. And I'm curious if that did cross your mind or if that was strange in any way or what your experience was for you also going through individuals that you know and categorizing them as Korean, my mom's side or of European like descent, my dad's side. With 23andMe, not everyone has a picture on their profile. Once you click the profile, it shows the DNA results. And it's like, it's this circle that says Asia. And if you're hundred percent Korean and it has like this red circle, if you're fully well, Korean. So- ignore all of what I asked that. <laughs> yeah. I was no, just, but- I don't know. That just struck me. I was thinking you were like looking at pictures. So no, that makes but- sense. But I was looking at photos too. Some of them did have profiles in imagery. And so I was able to see the ones that did have a picture of themselves to see if they're full Korean. And then I also saw people that were half Korean. So I was able to like identify and look. So the girl on Ancestry, her father was a Korean adoptee and she's half Korean. So there was parts of me that I was looking to see like, oh, do we look alike? Is there some resemblance and, you know, being biracial and being mixed has different features that are highlighted or not. And so I think it is an interesting topic and variable to navigate. So you were feeling nervous before wondering if you were going to find anybody, find anything. How do you feel now after being able to sit with it for a while, being able to have reached out to some people, having had full conversations about marathons in Korea with individuals and crafting letters and waiting for responses from other individuals. What, what's just your general sense right now? How are you feeling? What are you thinking? All of that. I think a combination of feeling so much gratitude and gratefulness to be connected with my Korean ancestors. I mean, I have, I matched with 33 Korean ancestors now than zero, two months ago, right? Three months ago, however long that was. And so I just, yeah, there's feelings of hope. There's feelings of excitement, fulfillment, while also still with a lot of questions, a lot more of, but why did my grandmother give my mom up? And why is my second cousin not responding to my very beautifully crafted email (laughs) that was validating and assuring and being like, Hey, we don't even have to talk about X, Y, Z. We don't have to talk about, you know, our grandparents or any of that. I'm like, why is she not responding? So there, there is some like 
wanting to know more. And I think it's giving me more of an appetite and more of this craving of wanting to dig in deeper and kind of being like a little investigator and asking, okay, but what was your great grandparents, you know, family name? Was it Kim? That's what was given to my mom on her adoption papers. But then also being like, wait, was that actually real or was that fabricated? So is what I'm doing, is that meaningless? Does that not even make a difference by me asking? Um, And I'm also asking them like what part of the country was their grandparents from. And I think that's giving me a sense of recognizing, I think, I don't know, but I think my mom was in a rural part of the country versus before this test, I think I thought my mom was from Seoul because that's where she was adopted from her children's home in placement agency was in Seoul. But I have a feeling that she was in rural Korea because so many of the relatives that I'm connected with, their grandparents are from the rural communities. And so I think there's these feelings of fascination and curiosity and desire for further exploration uh, and more puzzle pieces to the puzzle that I already have. But then also like being like, ooh, this puzzle kind of fits this part of the section and I'm filling it out. But now it's leading to more empty spaces and even more questions around, I think, adoption specifically within Korea. I'm like, the cousins that I'm connecting with that are adoptees as well, they're running into the same walls I am of being connected with a relative that's a second cousin and them not responding. So I'm like, gosh, just the level of shame that it feels like that's attached to to Korean adoptions makes me question, are there other countries that have this level of shame with their adoptions? I'm also curious if there's that level of shame across the board, or if it's level of shame associated with that time in history, with that age group, right? I mean, if we're talking about adoptees from the 50s, 60s, 70s, was it their generation, like, you know, their parents' generation? Because generations change as well and and thoughts around it. And so with, with that, is there a certain age group of individuals that you have matched with, or is it all, all over, all different ages? That's a great question. With my 33 matches, it's all over the board from as young as 23 years old to as old as in their seventies. Oh, wow. And so it's a quite a wide range in terms of adoptees. Again, I've, I've connected with 10 adoptees and that ranges as well from being in their twenties to some being older in, I'd say like their forties. Now, a third of those 33 that I've matched with have not even responded to my messages. The ones who have responded and who are adoptees themselves, are they, were they adopted into the U S? Yes. Actually, wait, let me look. I have it written down. No. Okay. That's a great question. One was adopted and raised in Korea. Okay. Okay. Which is very, very rare 
And she didn't share much more about that experience. So I was trying to be respectful and not pry, but a lot of them have been adopted into America. So with all of these additional questions that you have, right? You said, I have this puzzle and now, you know, there, there's all of these pieces. Okay. Yeah. okay. So, so you mentioned having your puzzle and you have all of these pieces. You do have a puzzle. And I'm curious if receiving your DNA results and finding out that your mother was in fact 100% Korean, that there wasn't you know, any, any Japanese blood in her or her dad wasn't an American GI during the war or anything like that, knowing she was in fact, hundred percent Korean, which means you are in fact, 50% Korean or half Korean. Was that validating or like, yes, I am like, I can own this now. Or did that not make a difference because you already knew and felt that? Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. Yes. I would say both. It felt validating. I think I knew my mom was full Korean, but I think all the years growing up of being told you don't look half Korean literally was told two days ago, you got nothing from your mom by someone. And so just hearing that over and over, it does start to put questions on a subconscious level of like, wait, was my mom full Korean? So once I got those results, it was like this sigh of relief and I think a sense of knowing, right? The sense of like, oh, I have that answer now. I can, I can prove it with results for any, <laughs> yes. any haters, yes. any doubters. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Not just showing a picture of my mom and then still looking at me like that doesn't matter, but to be like, look at this, look at my DNA. My blood. Am I space? <laughs> this is in my blood. <laughs> right. And so yeah, it was affirming and it felt it felt validating and exciting to be like, yes, I can fully own this. I can fully own my Korean heritage, my tie to my mom and her history, what she thought. And she knew that she was full Korean to be like, yep, you were, you are. So yeah, it did. It did provide meaning. Because we had talked last episode about, you know, what, what makes you Korean enough, right? Is it, how much of the food you know how to make? Is it how much music that you know? Is it how much you look Korean, quote unquote? Is it your blood? Is it this? Is it that? And that was probably the most striking part of our conversation last time. So I was just curious if having the proof, right, of your blood, if that did make a difference one way or the other to the way you felt about your identity or your mother's identity, it'd be like, yeah, okay. There is without a shadow of a doubt now, I can prove it to anybody who says differently. Absolutely. I think because there's so much unknown to my mom's story and her origin of why and how she got to America, I think that's a grounding point. Out of all the questions that feel maybe unknowable or untellable, this is one that I can confidently say like, yes, I can answer. My mom was full Korean. I'm half Korean. And it feels like a sense of security and a sense of grounding. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. There's someone in, in my own family who has a complicated history of adoption, but within the U.S., 
you know, a mother, mother passed away and single, single fathers in this time were not very common. And so he, he had some friends of his raise this woman in my family. Again, this is several generations back, but she grew up culturally Norwegian. And so she passed some of these stories and the cultural, just, just all of that down. And then when one of her ancestors took the DNA test, found out 0% Norwegian. So biologically, she is not Norwegian, but culturally she was raised Norwegian and always thought she was. And I think it shook her a little bit, but wait, who am I? I thought I was this, am I not? And especially in this day and age, as we are talking and, and more aware of the idea of cultural appropriation, right? Which is very different than fully believing and being raised in a culture and, you know, thinking it's your own, but it's just, it was a really nuanced thing of thinking, oh, this is who I am. This is my culture. This is how I was raised. And then finding out actually, no, I'm not. I think there was a, a news article also of individuals of a, of a Jewish family and finding out that, wait, I don't have a drop of Jewish blood in me. And, wow. with, and with that cultural identity, that is a religion that is also, you know, ancestry and heritage that's passed down by mother. And I know it was a very shocking thing because they, they did not, like, what happened here, mom and dad, like what's going on. Right. And so I know that some of these DNA tests can be very jarring, like we've talked about already, but yeah, I was just that the whole idea of what is culture and what is our cultural identity? Is it how we were raised? Is it only within the blood? Is it a both and can it change? These are just some really interesting questions that I'm curious if these themes will arise in the future. And right. now they might because I'm a bad researcher and I just put that out there. <laughs> no. no, that's really fascinating. And I think throughout this process of adoption and you know DNA and finding cultural meaning, for me, I find it interesting because on my mom's side, generations, they have been immersed in the Korean culture, right? That's been their identity from the Korean church to the kimchi food, the collective culture. And I find it fascinating that with one generation that stops mm. through the experience of adoption. And I'm like, really my mom to just all of a sudden be severed to not knowing she passed away without knowing what kimchi was, right? She wasn't immersed in the collective culture. She wasn't raised in what you would traditionally say as the Korean culture. And so for me, I'm like, does that just stop like through, because of the adoption experience that it just severs us from this rich lineage and years and generations of this culture. Well, and I sent you a text message a couple of weeks ago. I was preparing to lecture for, for a class that was all about development. And there's some very interesting research that they did with Korean adoptees into, I believe it was Sweden. I could be wrong. Was it, do you remember? I think it was Sweden. I think it was. So what they did was they looked at adoptive families. So families who adopted either Swedish children. So Swedish families adopting Swedish children or Swedish families adopting Korean children. And what they found was that the Korean children 
even if they had been adopted as infants, because they had heard the Korean language when they were still in their mother's womb, their brains were already primed to learn the Korean language. It had already been imprinted on their brain, even if they had never spoken a word of Korean. And so I think there is something beautiful of, yes, it stopped in some ways and in other ways, neurologically, biologically, there's even maybe spiritually, there is that connection and that tie, regardless of if she knew what kimchi was or she or wasn't, her brain was already familiar with Korea. And I think there's something profound and beautiful in that. Oh my gosh. Yes. That is so beautiful to have that DNA and that blueprint marked on you from birth and from being in vitro. Right. And I even think when you told me that I was like, gosh, I wonder if it'd be easier for me to know Korean too, because they say like my DNA is in my grandmother, right? Like from an epigenetic standpoint. Now I've tried learning Korean and it's, or Hangul and it's hard for me, (laughs) but I think what you're saying is so true of like, it is imprinted on us regardless if we're adopted or not. Cause I feel such a deep connection to my Korean culture. And when I stepped off the plane and landed in Korea for the first time, it did feel like home to me. And even though my mom was past at that time and she was raised in America, my whole time in Korea, I felt like I was getting these light bulb moments and experiencing my mom in the culture that I was in. And it was like, oh, this is why my mom was the way she was. This is why she acted in this way. This is why she was so strict in the traditional tiger mom. Cause it came and stemmed, I believe from the culture that she was from. And so I do think there is those ties, even though the adoption experience may have what feels like in the natural separation. How old was your mother when she was adopted? Did you, did you find that on her paperwork? They say anywhere like like three to five years old. That's, somewhere a, that's a big difference developmentally between a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Well, part of it is the Korean age system, right? Oh, okay. So when you are born, they you're technically one years old the day that okay. you're born. So it's, and they found my mom when she was a baby, supposedly, and she was malnourished when she came to the orphanage. Again, I don't so know might, fully what's true, story. right? But yes. it also could be, we don't know the actual birthday. Right. Right. I do know my mom remembered a couple of the songs in the Hangul language. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so she at least was of an age to remember songs. those songs. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think... This makes me really excited to hear from other adoptees from my mom's age, as well as children that might be going through these same questions or maybe other questions, and maybe they have answers that I don't have. So looking forward to our next participant. 
So if you are listening and you do fit into the category of being a Korean adoptee adopted in the 50s, 60s, or 70s, or you are an adult child of a Korean adoptee, or if you've gotten a random message from Tanya on your 23andMe or Ancestry, (laughs) we would love to hear from you. And I am also just really looking forward to continuing this conversation and this exploration. So as we're ending the podcast, we want to highlight something beautiful or fun or something really unknown about Korea. We're talking about some heavy things, but we also want to highlight just the beauty of Korea, the country, the culture, the people. So Tanya, you mentioned kimchi. And why don't we make that our fun fact for for the week? I love it. Yeah. So kimchi is a traditional spicy fermented dish made of vegetables. It's usually either cabbage, radish, or carrots. There's a lot of fermented dishes in the Korean culture, but kimchi specifically, you can't have a meal without it. A lot of people think, you know, rice, which is a very common thing. And you eat that too with the meals, but I learned very quickly that you can't have anything without kimchi. And so there's even a term called kimchi holics. So you can be a kimchi holic. (laughs) I became one when I lived in Korea. At first I didn't like it. It You have to kind of acquire the taste if you're not used to it, but after you have it for every meal, your, your palate adjusts to it. And I now have a huge jar of kimchi in my fridge at all times. And I've heard there's some amazing health benefits that go along with it as well. There are. At one point it was in the top five healthiest foods. So there you go. There's your fun fact for the week. If you are familiar with kimchi, go grab some. If you've never had some, go find your local Korean restaurant and get some authentic kimchi. 